And I have to tell you guys, good job this morning. First service is hard, missing an hour throughout the, the night. Uh, I can tell you, I barely made it here today, so. Um, if you would, again, Exodus 31, we'll be starting in verse 12. Yeah, second service has it easy, and for those that didn't set their clocks back, they just act like they meant to come to second service. So. <laughs> and if you would, stand for the reading of God's word this morning, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you, sh- you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you again once uh, again humbly, Lord, as we approach this text, Lord, as we finish up uh, this portion of scripture on the tabernacle, Lord, as we talk about uh, the men you inspired to build the tabernacle, as we talk about the, the Sabbath rest that you commanded, Lord, in the Mosaic covenant, Lord. I pray as we come to these topics, Lord, that you would be with us as um, uh, they are deep, Lord, and um, outside of our, a lot of our understanding, Lord, as new covenant believers, Lord. I pray that this would uh, enrich in, uh, Lord, our understanding of the new covenant, our understanding of our relationship with you, Lord. I pray throughout this passage in this sermon, Lord, that we would see your desire to, to dwell with your people, to, to have a relationship, Lord, uh, with us, Lord, to uh, be gracious and display your glory through your grace, Lord. God, I pray that's clearly seen in this passage. I pray uh, that your spirit would just open our eyes, Lord, to, to what you would have for us this morning. In your son's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Today we're uh, finishing up our sermon series on the tabernacle. Uh, I hope and pray that uh, it was as much of a blessing to you as it was for me studying this portion of scripture, uh, a portion of scripture, to be honest, that, that I've never really studied in depthly before until uh, this sermon series going through the book of Exodus. And um, it, like I said, it's been just a huge blessing every Sunday, uh, learning more and more and more about God's grace and uh, really how scripture is just perfectly connected together. Um, Exodus 25 through 31, we're in 31 today, Exodus 25 through 31, Moses has been called up to the top of Mount Sinai, he ascended the mountain, and he was getting instructions from the Lord for the tabernacle. Again, today we'll be finishing up chapter 31, I'm going to be preaching through the whole chapter this morning, Um, and it's going to be both a review of, of kind of where we have been and an introduction to the next portion of scripture where we're going to be for the next couple of weeks. Uh, to be honest, we're, we're getting close to the end. I know it doesn't seem that way, but we're getting close to the end of the book of Exodus. Um, uh, the next three chapters being, I believe, the three most important chapters in the entire book of Exodus and the three most neglected chapters in the entire book of Exodus. I, I w- I've claimed, and I, I still believe this, that the next three chapters are probably the most neglected chapters in all of Scripture uh, for the church uh, in their Im- importance. The Old Testament quotes from the next three chapters where we're going 
over and over and over again. And even in the New Testament, there's quotes from the next three chapters. And so understanding um, uh, where we're at in the book of Exodus is going to be extremely important this, this morning. So there's three parts of the sermon this morning. There's three parts, uh, really two parts of the chapter. And then uh, I want to bring those two parts together in the, the third, I guess, point. Uh, so the three parts of the sermon this morning are uh, Bezael and Aholiab. And that will make sense in a second here. Uh, the second part is the sign of the covenant. And then finally, I want to finish by bringing the, the two parts together with the, the recreation of the garden. Again, those titles probably don't mean a whole lot right now, but as we go through this chapter, you'll see why they're titled that way. So the first part of the sermon is Be'ezael uh, Be- and Aholiab. If you look at verse 1, Exodus 31, verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Uh, Bezalel was a, a gifted man, and he was a gifted man that was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 3, it says, I have filled him with the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, to build the tabernacle. Now, when you think about that, that's pretty, pretty incredible. Exodus 25 through 31, we've spent weeks on this portion of scripture. It's all about the tabernacle. We've been talking about the tabernacle. God is giving Moses to give to the Israelites detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle, but he didn't stop there. He also empowered a man with his own spirit, the Holy Spirit, to build it. A man filled with the spirit to work in gold, silver, and bronze and cutting Uh, stones for setting and carving wood to work in every craft to build the tabernacle and the furnishings inside the tabernacle. Verse 4 says to devise artistic design. God inspired a man with the Holy Spirit to make the tabernacle and to make the tabernacle both beautiful and glorious. And he wasn't alone. Verse 6 says this, and behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan. Aholiab was uh, there to help Bezalel to build the tabernacle. And give, I have given to all able men ability, the scripture keeps going, that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then God gives Moses a a kind of a recap of everything that he's told Moses and the Israelites to build the tabernacle and the furnishings inside. Verse 7, it says this, the tent of meetings. This is the heavenly part of the tabernacle. The glorious and beautiful part, which represents heaven, and it's closely to the presence of God. And the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent. God's presence, as we learn going through each different piece of the tabernacle, God's presence was found above the ark, above the mercy seat, which was the lid of the ark, inside the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Verse 8, the table and its utensils. This is the golden table within the tent with 12 pieces of bread on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. And the pure lampstand and all its utensils. This is the golden lampstand that's on the other side of the tent from the table. Shaped like a tree. Shaped like a tree on purpose because it's representing life. right? Like the tree of life. Life and light. That God shines life and light on the people. The 12 pieces of bread on the golden table. And the altar of incense. This is the golden altar within the tent right in front of the presence of God, the altar of incense, right, where burnt incense would be burning all the time and creating smoke, and this smoke symbolizing the prayers of God's people rising to the throne, room of God. 
Verse 9, and the altar of burnt offerings and all, with all its utensils. This is the bronze altar that's out in the courtyard. This is where all the sacrifices would have been sacrificed in front of it and then burnt on the bronze altar. And the basin and its stands, we talked about this two weeks ago, the bronze basin, again outside in the courtyard, uh, just in front of the tent where the priests would wash their hands as they would enter into the tent. Verse 10, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments of Aaron the priest. And there's a whole chapter on, on, on the high priest's garments that were supposed to be made in, in a way that would, would shine beauty and glory. They really brought the, the beauty of the inside of the tent, the heavenly part where only the priests were allowed to go into, where none of the Israelites were allowed to see. It brought the beauty from the inside outside to the people as the high priest walked around the courtyard performing his duties. And the garments of his sons and their services preach, verse 11, priests, verse 11, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Again, these two men were to build the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They were both filled with God's spirit to build the tabernacle and to make it beautiful. Now, I was thinking about this, and I just, I just want to point something out. If you Google search the tabernacle, which I, I'm sure many of you have, and a lot of you have even brought the results of the Google search to me, it's, it's kind of exciting. There's all types of models, pictures, and even reconstructions of the tabernacle. There's a reconstruction of the tabernacle in Israel right now um, just to be a model of what it would have looked like. And it, it's pretty cool, and it helps you understand the size, the shape, where all the furnishings go. I, I think those recreations and those models are helpful, but I want to be clear, they are recreations, not the original. And that's important because the original was made by men inspired by God to devise artistic designs. Meaning, you just think about how, how helpful those recreations are, we need to remember that, that they fall short to the true wonder and the true beauty of the original. Built by Bizel El and Aholiab. So that's our first portion of this passage this morning, Bizel El and Aholiab. The, the second part of our passage in chapter, chapter 31 of Exodus is the, the sign of the covenant. Now, it seems like this passage really just kind of switches gear. You have the, the first part of the chapter talking about these two men that are going to build the tabernacle, and then you get to verse 12, and all of a sudden you're talking about the Sabbath, and how these two things go together, and, and, and I hope you'll see how they go together in the, the third part this morning, but let's look at the sign of the covenant. If you would look at verse 12, it says this, and the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Exodus 31, again, goes from these men inspired by God to build the tabernacle to the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Again, this seems like it comes out of nowhere, What's the Sabbath have to do with building the tabernacle? I think the best way commentators I have read has connected the two. It's like, well, if you're going to be building something, you need to remember that you should take a day off. Right? I don't think that that's why this is here, and I'll explain in a little bit, a little bit why I think the Sabbath comes right after uh, talking about these two men. But let's just examine this uh, before we get there. Uh, this is the third time in the book of Exodus that God has commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is very important in the book of Exodus. In fact, it's going to be commanded one more time before we get to the end uh, of the, the book. The word Sabbath uh, relates to the Hebrew word sabbat, which means to cease, means to stop, or to rest, to let rest. 
which clearly is the main thrust of this command, and we've gone over the fourth commandment, Israel was to rest on the Sabbath day. They were to stop normal day-to-day labor and rest. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11. Again, this is the fourth commandment. And I want you to pay attention to the idea of rest. The word rest, but, but, but even more than that, the idea of rest. Just listen to, to verse 8. It says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work. You or your sons, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now the main emphasis of the fourth commandment is rest. Is rest. Six days Uh, Israel was to work one day, the seventh day, the Sabbath, you shall not do any work. You shall rest. And this is important because I think many people, I know many people believe that the main purpose of the Sabbath was worship. But we don't see that in this command. Now, we're to worship in everything we do, so of course you are to worship in your rest even, but the the main thrust of the fourth commandment was rest. Now, there's a couple of practical things this rest did in the Old Testament. First, the Sabbath rest graciously gave Israel a day to get ready for the next week of work, to rejuvenate, to restore, to refresh, to rest the body, the mind, the soul, the spirit. The Sabbath provided rest. But it also, and I want you to think about this, and we talked about this when we went through the the fourth commandment, it also broke up the week. We're just used to our weeks being broken up. By the way, there's no reason in astronomy that that we have a seven-day week. That all just comes from Scripture. So the whole world that has a seven-day week, that just comes from Genesis. Because God rested on the seventh day. If you don't get what I'm saying, we have uh, 365 days, right, in a year. That's because that's how long it takes the earth to go around the sun, right? Am I right? Yes. (laughs) 24 hours in a day, because how long it takes, this is obviously not my notes, Um, (laughs) takes a day. There's no reason for a seven-day, in fact, that's an odd number. It would be a lot more easier if it was a five-day week, Right? In fact, I, my, my birthday would be on the same day every year if it was a five-day week, right? Same, same day of the month, right? And for the, that, the three people that are math majors got that. Um, <laughs> seven days, awkward, awkward number. But the only reason it was seven day, right, throughout the whole earth is because God created the earth in seven days, right? it, it, We're used to our week being broken up. Six days work, one day rest, six day work, one day rest. The, the, the Sabbath day broke up the week. And I want you to think about this. When Israel was under the rule of Pharaoh, they had no rest. They were slaves. When Pharaoh was their king, when Pharaoh was their little G God, they had no rest. They had no, they, they had no rhythm in their week. It didn't matter what day it was, every day was labor, every day was slavery, every day was hard. Now that they belong to Yahweh, capital G God, the one true God, as their king, they had rest. In fact, Yahweh commanded them to rest. Six days work, one day rest, the Sabbath gave a rhythm to the week. A rhythm that taught Israel an important lesson. Every day belonged to the Lord. Every day they were to glorify God in both their work, six days, and their rest, the seventh day. Listen to what Albert Muller writes about the Sabbath. The Sabbath would have been an institutional, public, and absolutely obvious indication of Israel's special status as Yahweh's people. 
He is a holy God who makes claims upon the totality of the life of his people, their calendar, their time, and their Sabbath days. All belong to God. All belong to Yahweh. And this is why the Sabbath is so significant in Exodus. In Exodus, God established his covenant with Israel. The Mosaic covenant. The old covenant. The covenant that, that God made with the nation of Israel. A nation that was, was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And the Sabbath was the sign of that reality. Look at verse 13. You shall speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign. Very important. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath was a sign for Israel. By the way, I don't believe, there's a debates on this, I don't believe as new, new covenant believers we are required or commanded to keep a Sabbath. Right? Part of the reason that is is because it was a sign for Israel. It was an Old Testament sign. It was a sign that they were in covenant relationship with, the, with God. I believe we have the Lord's Day that's established in the New Testament, that we come on the Lord's Day for the purpose of worship, not necessarily rest. When we find rest in worship, those two things, again, are connected. But we come on the first day of the week, which is actually the eighth day. Again, I'm off my nose, but the eighth day, which means new creation. It's a sign of new creation, that we're new creations, we're a new creature in Christ. And so we come together on, and he was raised on the Lord's Day, that's why it's called the Lord's Day, and we worship on the Lord's Day. We don't necessarily keep the Sabbath because that's an old covenant sign. The Sabbath was a sign of that covenant. This is why breaking the Sabbath in the Old Testament was such a big deal. Look at verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. A severe penalty for this. Look at verse 16, it keeps going. Therefore, uh, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, <clears throat> observing the Sabbath throughout their generation as a covenant forever. And then verse 17, just really clear. Right? It, the Sabbath, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. The Sabbath was a covenantal sign. It was the sign of the covenant between God and Israel. I've said this before, but I think it's very helpful. It's like a wedding ring. My, my wedding ring is a sign. It's a sign of a covenant that I made between my, me and my wife. I often say at weddings, and in fact, I always say at weddings, rings don't make a person married. It's not the substance of the marriage, but it's important. Because it's a sign of that relationship. The wedding ring is a reminder. It's symbolic of the covenant that was made on the wedding day. It's a sign that lets everyone know that, that these two people, by the way, a man and a woman, one man, one woman, have entered into a permanent and lasting covenant with each other. The wedding ring doesn't make a couple married, but it's a sign of the covenantal commitments to each other. In a, in a very similar way, God often gave a sign in relation to the covenant he makes with mankind. Every covenant in the Old Testament up to Exodus had a covenantal sign. Let me just show you what I mean. If you would, turn to uh, Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. <clears throat> This is the Noahic covenant. It's called the Noahic covenant because 
Noah is the mediator of this covenant, right? The Noahic covenant, the covenant made between, between God and Noah and God and really all of mankind. Genesis 9.13 says this, I have set my bow in the cloud, that's the rainbow, and it shall be a sign, there's that word, a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, verse 15, I will remember my covenant. It's just like a wedding ring. When a husband sees and feels the ring on his finger, his wedding ring, it's a reminder of his covenant, the covenant that he's in with his wife. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow is a sign of the Noahic covenant. Now turn to Genesis 17. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Again, Abraham being the mediator between for this covenant. So it's named after Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. Very similar wording. Right? Verse 9, Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham... As for you, you shall keep my covenant. There's that word again, covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generation, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign. It's a sign. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Again, very similar language to the Noahic covenant, a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision is a, is a covenantal sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Again, verse 11, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 31. This is the Mosaic covenant. Moses being the mediator of this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or what we typically call the Old Covenant. Exodus 31, verse 16. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Verse 17. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. In other words, between me and you. There's a very similar wording to both the Noahic covenant and, and the Abrahamic covenant. The Noahic covenant being the sign being the rainbow and the Abrahamic covenant the sign being circumcision. The Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Again, verse 17, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. Therefore, the Sabbath was a sign. It reminded Israel every single week. It reminded Israel that they were in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, which was a big deal. And this brings me to my last point this morning. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. Now, the first part of this chapter and the second part of this chapter seem like they don't really relate to each other, but this is where we bring the whole chapter together. Listen, the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, but the Sabbath did something else too. It's very important, especially for the context of our passage this morning, this chapter. The Sabbath connected the tabernacle to the garden. Look at verse 17 again. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, and the seventh day uh, he rested and was refreshed. Right? That's Genesis 1 and 2. Right? 
Six days he made the earth, seventh day he rested. That's Genesis 1 and 2, that's creation. In particular, that's the garden. God created the garden, put Adam in the garden. And I hope this is super clear by now as we spent so much time on the tabernacle. If you're new this morning, then, then this may not be obvious, but if you go back and listen to all, the whole sermon series, I hope this is extremely clear that Exodus 25 through 31 is all about the tabernacle, but there is a connection between the tabernacle and the garden. We've seen this over and over, and I've tried to point it out every single time, but we've seen this over and over and over and over again. Actually, I take that back. There's so many times, I've had, I, just because we want to get through Exodus at some point, I've had to back off and not point out every single time. <laughs> let, me, let me give you an example. Again, I'm going to go off my nose this morning. Um, you go to a shepherd's conference, you hear people preach, and then you feel like you can do whatever you want. That's, yeah. Anyways, uh, the breastplate of the, the high priest with all the stones... I didn't even mention this because there was so much in that chapter. I just didn't have time. Those, all those stones are seen in the garden. We, we see them in Genesis 2, a couple of them, but you go to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel talks about the stones in the garden, and all those stones are found there. There's this connection between the garden and the tabernacle. In fact, turn to Exodus 25, verse 1. Again, I just want to give you the context. Exodus 25 through 31, right? Moses has been called up to the top of Mount Sinai and God is giving him instructions and, and he's actually showing him what it looks like. I don't know how he has shown him what, what the tabernacle is to look like, but it fills in the, the details that aren't in these instructions. Uh, he, he gives them instructions on, on how to build the tabernacle. And look at verse 1, Exodus 25, verse 1. It's the very beginning of this whole portion of Scripture. It says this, the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, so that's God's name, Yahweh. It could just be translated, Yahweh said. Yahweh said to Moses. God is speaking, in other words. In fact, from Exodus 25 all the way to, to Exodus 31, our passage this morning, only God speaks. Moses doesn't say a word. It's a monologue. It's God telling Moses what to do. Moses doesn't even say, okay, <laughs> quiet. God speaks and gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, his creation. Now, let me ask a question. Does that sound familiar? I hope you see the connection a little bit now because that's Genesis 1. Where over and over and over again, God spoke. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. Genesis 1-6, God said, let there be an expanse. Genesis 1-9, God said, let the waters. Genesis 1-11, God said, let the earth. In Genesis 1, God spoke creation into existence. And there's a connection here between the tabernacle and creation. Again, look at Exodus 25.1. The Lord said, or better, Yahweh said. Guess how many times that phrase is used in this portion of Scripture, right, within these chapters between Exodus 25 and 31? Seven times. Because it points us back to Genesis, the seven days of creation where God spoke creation into existence. In fact, turn to Exodus 30 now. Exodus chapter 30, look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, Again, Yahweh said. Look at verse 17, just a few verses down. Yahweh said. Look at verse 22, a few, few more verses down. Yahweh said to Moses. Look at verse 34. Yahweh said to Moses. Just like creation, God speaks over and over and over again and and there's a connection here. It's a recreation of the garden that's happening. Look at Exodus 31, verse 1. This is our passage this morning. 
This is the sixth time this phrase is used. Yahweh said. Now, let me ask a question. What did God create on the sixth day? Man. In particular, Adam and Eve. And what was Adam's job? What was given to Adam on that day? To work. To work God's creation. To work the garden. Well, look at verse 1, Exodus 31. The Lord said, Yahweh said to Moses, that's the sixth time this phrase is used, verse 2, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him, this man, and filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and, and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship. It, it's like the image of God. The, it's what God gave Adam, <laughs> to devise artistic design, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and, and carving wood, to work, there it is again, to work in every craft. This, this man was filled with the Spirit of God to work, in other words, to build the tabernacle, to work it. What's that sound like? It's Adam in the garden. Zelel is a type of Adam. And he wasn't to work it alone. Look at verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him, in other words, to help him, Aholiab. Aholiab was appointed to help him. What's that sound like? Eve. Who was to help Adam. This means the sixth time God speaks, he appointed two people to work his creation, to work the tabernacle. What do you think happens the seventh time God speaks? Look at verse 12. Yahweh said, the Lord said, Yahweh said to Moses, this is the seventh time, the seventh and final time, and he says this, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is the last thing God commands in this portion of scripture to observe the Sabbath. I want you to think about this for a second because there's all types of, you know, I've read all the commentaries, everyone's trying to figure out why the Sabbath is put here. What does the Sabbath have to do with the instructions of the tabernacle? The best people have come up with in, in a lot of the commentaries I've read is like, well, they're supposed to work, so God's just reminded them, hey, make sure you remember the fourth commandment. <laughs> it's way more significant than that. It's almost like this, 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 this portion of scripture, the very last part of this passage, is out of place unless Moses is pointing us back to creation. And especially uh, the garden. You know what? That's exactly what he's doing because look at verse 17. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. There's a connection between creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and the creation of the tabernacle, Exodus 25 through 31. There's a connection. God wants us to see this connection. And here's the connection. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. It's a recreation of the garden. Listen again, I know for most of us, this is review because we've seen this over and over and over again. There's all types of allusions to the garden with the tabernacle. I mean, think about it. Let me just remind you, you. You entered from the east and you moved westward toward the presence of God. Just like the garden. Adam and Eve were, were kicked out of the garden on the east side and moved eastward away from the presence of God. The lampstand was, was made like a tree. We went through how it was built. It was meant to look like a tree within the tabernacle, within the garden, representing the tree of life. There's cherubim, really cherubim everywhere, representing a heavenly realm, but especially in front of the veil. As you move westward and you get to the veil that separated uh, the priests from the presence of God, right? They were guarding the way to the Lord, the way to the Holy of Holies, just like the two cherubim that were placed in front of the garden, like guarding the way back to the garden. And I could keep going. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. 
Meaning, just like God lived in the midst of the garden with Adam and Eve, God is going to live in the midst of the tabernacle with Israel, right in the middle of their camp. And listen, this is good news. If you want to know how all this applies to us, because we don't have a tabernacle anymore, I don't think we are to observe Sabbaths anymore. I think it's good to take a day of rest. But I don't think it's a law. What's this all have to do do with us? This teaches us that God desires to restore the garden. That's super important. God desires to restore his relationship with man. It was disrupted, it was broken, it was completely destroyed because of sin. In Adam and Eve's sin, there was a separation between man and God, and God, this shows his heart that he, he, he's he's desiring to dwell with his people, to have a relationship with his people. In fact, this is the purpose of the tabernacle in the first place. God makes it very clear in Exodus 25, verse 8. He says this, And let them make me a sanctuary, this is the tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. Just like the garden. In fact, this is the first time, the tabernacle will be the first time since the garden that God dwelled with man on earth. But there's a problem. Man is still sinful. Let me ask a question. What happens in the garden? What happens right after Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 3. My kids could answer that. Adam and Eve sinned. Think about this. If Exodus 25 through 31 is the recreation of the garden, what happens right after that? Sin. Exodus 32, the worship of the golden calf. Again, if Exodus 25 through 31 is the recreation of the garden, then... Exodus 32 is a recreation of the fall of man. Before the new garden this time, before it could even be built, man sins. He worships a false god. He fails. Just like Adam and Eve. Listen, I want you to understand the significance of the next three chapters. The significance of, of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. Remember, Exodus 1 through 18, that whole portion of Scripture, the most familiar part of Exodus, Yahweh saves Israel, Yahweh redeems Israel, Yahweh buys them out of slavery. Israel now belongs to him. He, he owns them because it's like buying a slave out of slavery. If you buy a slave out of slavery, you own them. But his grace doesn't stop there in the book of Israel, even though most of our understandings uh, of the book of Exodus uh, it stops there. But, but his grace doesn't stop there. Because they don't just say slaves bought out of slavery. In Exodus chapter 19 through 24, God enters into a covenant with them. A relationship with them. With commitments to each other. In fact, Exodus 24, we spend a lot of time there, is a ceremony. It's a ceremony uh, that ratifies the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. Exodus 24, honestly, is very similar to a wedding ceremony where vows are made between two parties, two people, again, a man and a woman. Just listen to Exodus 24, verse 7. Let me read this. Then he, that's Moses, then he, he took the book of the covenant, that's all the laws, we spent a ton of time in that, the Ten Commandments, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And listen to what the, the people did. And they, the, this is Israel, they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What's that sound like? I just did a wedding. I do. 
we will do and we will be obedient. They are vowing to obey in this covenant with the Lord. Now let me ask a question. What happens right after a marriage, right, a wedding ceremony? Right, after the husband and wife make their vows, exchange the sign of the covenant, their rings, after the celebration, because there's a huge celebration in, in Exodus 24, after the celebration, after the reception, what happens next? The husband and wife start living together. Think about what God is doing. He starts to, to, to prepare a place, the tabernacle, to live with the Israelites. Exodus 24, verse 8, and, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Listen, this is what makes the golden calf narrative so meaningful. Before Moses can even come down the mountain with the instructions for the tabernacle where God will dwell with his people that he's in covenant relationship with, Israel was already breaking the first and second commandment. Already breaking their vows, they built a golden calf, a false god, and said, this is our God. He's the one that saved us. And they started to worship it. This would be like, right after a marriage ceremony, after the vows, after the, the commitments to each other, after the reception and celebration with all the family and friends, the bride finds another man on the way to the honeymoon and cheats on her husband before they can even live together. When you understand the context and outline of Exodus, you realize that the worship of the golden calf is one of the most horrific sins in all of Scripture. In fact, how God responds to this sin becomes foundational to the rest of Scripture. Becomes foundational to the rest of Scripture. God's response reveals the character of God. It reveals his name. Remember, Exodus is all about God revealing his name. How he responds to the golden calf narrative reveals his name more than anything else in Exodus. Making Exodus 32 through 34, the golden calf narrative, three of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. In fact, if you want to understand who God is, He's revealed in Exodus 32 through 34. And this is where we'll be heading in the next few weeks. As for today, I, let me just end with this because I, I think this is extremely important. The name of God is revealed in creation. God's character, who he is, his name is revealed in creation. Psalm 19.1 The heavens the heavens, when we look up at the heavens, the stars, the clouds, the, the rain, the earth, the, the mountains, the heavens declare, in fact, they scream the glory of God. They proclaim. You walk outside and, 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 and all the heavens are yelling at you, God is glorious. The name of God is revealed in his judgment. It's very clearly seen in the, in the book of Exodus. And in fact, this is what scares a lot of people about the book of Exodus is, is that we see that God is a wrathful God. He's a just God. He won't let sin just go unpunished. And we see this in ten plagues against the Egyptians and the drowning of the whole army. God told Pharaoh, in fact, for this purpose... I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's character, his name, who he is, is revealed in his judgment. But more than anything else, and, and this is what's so important, and if you understand the, the whole, the whole meta-narrative, the whole story of Exodus, this is just so clearly saying, more than anything else, God's name, his character, who he is, is seen in his grace. 
That's good news. God is a gracious God. Exodus 32 through 34 points us, it's the high point of the book of Exodus, and it points us straight to the grace of God. These three chapters point us straight to Jesus and his death on the cross in such a beautiful way, which I believe we will be seeing as we walk through these next through few chapters. But, but let me just say this. If you want to know who Yahweh is, the God of the Old Testament, who's the same God in the New Testament, if you want to know who Yahweh is, look at the cross. So let me end by saying this. If you don't have a relationship with God, know this. He is gracious. He sent his son to earth to live a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life, a life we we didn't and couldn't live, to die on the cross for our sins. And God won't let sin just go unpunished. It has to be punished. So he sent his son to take that punishment on for us so that we could have a relationship with him. It's only through Jesus, it's only through faith in him and trusting in him, not through good works, not through trying to be righteous, but through him that a relationship with God is possible. If you've never put your faith in him, this is the time to do it right now. Cry out to God in your heart. Ask for forgiveness for your sins. Trust in his son. Dear God, our God, our Father, even that name, Lord, every time I pray, I'm amazed that I can address you as Father. Not just King, not just God, not just Lord, but Father. That within itself just cries out your grace, Lord, towards me, a sinner that does not deserve to call you Father. God, I know... Sometimes the Old Testament can be confusing for us in the New Testament, and that's our fault because we we haven't spent the time to study it, Lord. Sometimes it can be scary because we can can see your wrath towards sins, and, and innately we all know we're sinners. But God, your grace is found everywhere in Scripture. It reveals your name. It shows who you are that you are a God that is gracious towards sinners, so much so that you would send your son to die on the cross for them. Let us worship you for that, Lord. In your son's name, amen.